Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Jaron Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, Social Media Director at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, who is protecting and preserving Black culture? So... I'm finally reunited with my beloved co-host, Jaren. Yay. Uh, it's been, I mean, we've been tag teaming it. Uh, <laughs> so I'm so hyped to finally catch up and really chat. Um, again, to our listeners, or rather to our viewers, if you're watching on YouTube, my house is in disarray right now because I am packing for my move to Atlanta. So please excuse all of that. Uh, so before we get into the show, I have to know, G, what is on your mind this week? Uh, yes. And Shauna, first, yes, reunited and it feels so good. Um, so good. <laughs> I'm so happy that we're back together. And was all, what's on my mind this week is a serious topic, uh, as I'm sure many people saw this past weekend. Um, in South Africa, they identified a new variant. So we talked so much about the Delta variant. There were memes about it. You know, you are, uh, you know, a member of Delta Sigma Theta. I'm sure you're very familiar with the memes around the Delta variant. <laughs> and now there's now there's a new meme around the Omicron uh, variant. And they're calling it the Omarion variant, which, I mean, it's hilarious. Let's just, I mean, I know that the, the this is a public health pandemic and it's serious. But, you know, Black Twitter, Black people always find a way to inject some humor uh, in the midst of like, you know, global trauma. Uh, and But it is a serious topic and it was identified first uh, by scientists in South Africa. And almost immediately, President Joe Biden, uh, his administration issued a travel restriction. Um, so th- no uh, flights, no travels from South Africa to South Africa um, and southern parts of uh, the African continent. And it it started a, a huge debate. Uh, many South Africans blasted not just the, the travel restriction uh, instituted by the U.S., but other nations. Um, they see it as something that is xenophobic um, and racist. Um, and many have compared it to what the Trump administration did when uh, when Trump incessantly called uh, the virus the China virus and, and, and targeted China. And in South Africa, they're like, listen, we didn't create this variant. We were just we just had the technology and the science to figure out this new variant before you did. And now you're punishing us by not allowing by restricting travel, which which we know will impact their economy. And so there have been um, uh, uh, arguments that this was a rushed haste decision. And President Biden spoke to the American people on Monday. Uh, he stood by this decision. He said that. He said that while it wasn't a um, cause for panic, it's a cause for concern. But some people argue that when you when you have a restrictive travel ban as as widespread as this one is, that sounds like panic and not just concern. And so some people feel like there should have been more of a wait to see. We don't even know what we we don't even know enough about the variant to decide uh, how we should deal with it. They're saying it's going to take a couple of weeks for them to really identify 
enough information about the variant is are the vaccines that we have enough to protect us from it some scientists are predicting that uh it won't and they're saying now we we especially now need to get a booster all adults in the u.s are able to get a booster uh so that is important but then you have the problem with the vaccine there are poor countries and countries in africa uh, who are part of this travel restriction ban uh, that don't have the the access to vaccines like America does. I think like 30% of South Africa or parts of Africa are currently vaccinated. Whereas here in the U.S., I think, I think over 70% of all adults in the U.S. are vaccinated. Um, Biden has said that, you know, basically the U.S. has done their job, that uh, the U.S. has issued more than 200 million uh, vaccines. I don't think 200 million vaccines is enough. I do understand that it's not just the United States and it shouldn't be just the United States responsibility uh, to provide vaccines to the rest of the world. There are other rich nations that have that capability. But when you uh, proclaim yourself to be a powerful, rich nation like the U.S., you want to be a leader. uh, It's it's in times like this, in times of of crises uh, where you have to step up. And so I hope that uh, this is resolved. Um, I hope the variant, the Omarion variant, the variant, the Omicron variant, whatever you want to call it, I hope that is not um, what some scientists uh, worry it will be and that it will be more like the Delta variant where we saw an uptick in hospitalization. But uh, overall, um, the Delta variant did not do, did not have as much destruction as some people had feared. Uh, so we need to closely uh, monitor this. We will do that obviously here at the GRIO, but this is just your public service announcement that the pandemic is not over. I know that here in DC, the mask mandates indoors has been lifted, but in across the country, there are different policies around mask wearing and people still haven't gotten vaccinated. People still have apprehensions and fears, but please do take this seriously. This pandemic is has been almost two years. I'm exhausted. I know you're exhausted. Let's just work together to get through what we hope will be the last leg of this pandemic. Um, but yeah, the Omicron variant is here. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it's certainly here. Um, and I am not at all shocked, not at all surprised at the very racist, um, <laughs> the very racist and, and xenophobic uh reaction that has that has occurred um and it's always very interesting to me that we we like to address those things but we're not addressing the fact that like countries like the united states likes to like to hoard vaccines you know like and and there are people not even wanting it there are republicans are actively paying people to not get vaccinated so i mean but okay that's cute (laughs) like but we'll see what ends up happening um so for me this week, and funny enough, it was actually brought on by uh, not this recent episode, but in a, a recent episode of the show Insecure. Um, and it has just been <sighs> black folks in estate planning. Listen, <laughs> I've, I've been trying to do this with my grandmother. Um, you know, like I've, I've go, told you guys about like the house that we live in. My mother and my father are right now about to like buy this house from my grandmother. Um, I might possibly, you know, double dabble and put my name on the mortgage as well. We'll see. Uh, my, but even like having the conversation about estate planning with my grandmother has been 
an enormous challenge. Um, same thing with my father and my mother, who... I, what I found is the vast majority of black folks, they usually are like, well, or rather like what has been on like my father and my mother's thing has been like, well, you know, you're our kid. Like everything would just go to you anyway. Uh, but then there are situations like, you know, with my dad, my dad has my brother. Right. And I'm like, Granted, we just met him a few years ago. I was like, but technically he could legally have some kind of access to these funds. And granted, I'm not, I would never hoard any money. I'm sorry, but my brother's not getting 50% of nothing. But I've been in the (laughs) trenches too long. I'm so sorry. But, (laughs) you know, but I would. You and this brother soccer. Listen, you know, but I would absolutely make sure that my brother is taken care of. um, But I'm also just like, dad, you need to put pen to paper on what you actually want and need to happen. Um, when he was going through his spinal surgery earlier this year and, you know, he, he we all were hoping that he wasn't going to see the heavenly gates. That's when he took it very seriously. He was getting paperwork together and making sure like retirement stuff was happening and pension plans were going to go to my mother's name, et cetera, et cetera. And then now he's he's on the mend and I'm like, why is it like pulling teeth with you? <laughs> to get this stuff going. Same thing with my grandmother who loves to be morbid and say things like, well, you know, I don't know how much time I have left. And I'm like, you know, that's a really great point. What's going on with the wills? What's going on with the documentations? And it, I I don't, I don't know. It's like this weird trust thing amongst black folks, especially elder, like older black folks who are so, they're not sneaky, but secretive about it. And I'm almost like, are you expecting to be like on an episode of Dateline? I promise you, I'm not going to try and take you out. The money is not that important. <laughs> I just want to make sure that we are contributing to generational wealth, you know, um, and making sure that the family is good. Like that, that's at the end of the day, let's make sure that not just you, but the kids, the grandkids, the great grandkids are going to be all right. Like we we done fought too hard to be here to end up with nothing um you know at the end of the day so that has been a, a point of frustration um i i tip my hat to all of y'all who are basically parenting your parents and your grandparents right now <laughs> um especially with this this uh with the stuff going on with the pandemic and you know we really you literally you never know and so it is important to take this stuff seriously. It is not a comfortable conversation to have. No, no one wants to think about death and all this other stuff. But in the grand scheme, you need to make sure that like your family is going to be good. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm now also harassing these folks about like, well, do you have life insurance? Because here's the thing, the money that you leave me, if, if half of it is going to go to putting you in the ground, what is the point? So, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, just shout out to everybody who is going through this really annoying period of life. Um, but we got to hold on strong, y'all. We, yeah, we all we got. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, you know, in more access to that um, and, and really just thinking about overall about planning your, your I'm also thinking about legacy right and specifically mm-hmm. preserving black culture which we know influences the world so uh, protecting black culture feels more important than ever before and we're going to talk about it today on the show so 
So if the past few years have taught us anything is that we live in a country that loves black culture, even if it doesn't love black people, which is why it is more important than ever to make sure our stories, communities and legacies are captured accurately. As always, it's up to us to do exactly that. Earlier this year, a study by the Urban Institute reported that Black Americans were likely undercounted on the 2020 census at a rate three times higher than they were undercounted a decade ago. This literal erasure from history books is just one of the reasons why preserving Black legacies is important. Our guests this week say their nonprofit organization, Black Space, is committed to, quote, demanding a present and a future where Black people, Black spaces, and Black culture matter and thrive. Later today, we'll be joined by Emma Asore and Kenyatta McLean from Black Space to talk more about preserving Black legacies. Yep, yep, yep. I'm really, I'm so excited for them to join us. Yeah. Uh, but gee, you know, I do want to know, What's the history that you feel like you do know? Like in particular, black history, obviously. Uh, but what's the history that you feel like you like you actively know that you were actively taught? And what are some aspects of history that maybe you had to learn, you know, from outside sources like movies or TVs or elders? You know, what what are those type of things? You know, I talked about this before on Dear Culture. I forget what episode, but I remember as a child in, in school in particular not really being taught black history. Um, I went to Catholic schools throughout my entire education uh, with the exception of like kindergarten. Um, but like from like first grade to through high school, it was Catholic school. And so it was very Eurocentric. And I remember when I went to Morehouse College and I took, you know, some history courses and black literature courses and I really learn uh, the, the true history of slavery and, and, and European oppression. And, you know, this episode is about, you know, preserving black legacies, uh, particularly around urban planning. And, you know, as we were preparing for this episode, I was thinking to myself, what did I know as a kid when I was growing up um, about my neighborhood, which was which is Bed-Stuy, Do or Die, Brooklyn, New York? At the time, I would say my childhood, what I knew about Bed-Stuy was always centered around the dangers of the neighborhood and not what the neighborhood had to offer or what the rich history that obviously lives in Bed-Stuy. My dad was very protective, and so he always focused on uh, the violence and gang activity in the neighborhood. Uh, People often talked about, uh, I think about Spike Lee and Do the Right Thing. Obviously, he's also from Bed-Stuy and... And the, uh, that movie was centered in Bed-Stuy or was based in Bed-Stuy and it centered on, on police brutality. And so, so much of what I knew and understood about Bed-Stuy was negative. And so I started doing research about Bed-Stuy and I didn't know that uh, black people actually came to Bed-Stuy in the 1900s, early 1900s. Uh, because Harlem was so overcrowded, and so they had to find available housing, and so they went to went to Brooklyn. And there's such a such a, such a rich history in Best Eye that I just really didn't know. Um, but Shauna, I want to pose the same question to you. Like, well, rather, what did you know about your neighborhood, and what are some of the things about Black culture that you think is important to preserve? I also grew up in Brooklyn, but I was a sheltered only child. 
didn't really get to go out anywhere or do anything. So I didn't know much about my neighborhood. It was the West Indian Day Parade happens out there. Make sure your ass is inside. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, after a certain hour, because you can wave your flag from the fire fire escape. That was pretty much it. Um, But one thing I will say, and and kudos to my parents, because they were so intentional and low-key. We actually just had this conversation last week about this. Uh, my mom and my dad made sure I had the foundation for the uh, quote unquote militant uh, bit that I do right now. Um, I went to a preschool called Johnson's Preschool, um, which was hella Afrocentric. I learned about black pride and I knew the principles of Kwanzaa at like three. Wow. Like, like there, there is, there are VHS tapes that my father owns of me reciting this and then doing, you know, um, being the, the narrator for the, the school, uh, showcase, you know, the little winter showcase and stuff, you know, when little snot nosed kids come out and do all that stuff. Uh, but I, I, it, it was really and truly like beautiful and it helped lay the foundation for a lot of things. Um, you know, again, I come from, a family of Jamaica and Guyana. From Guyana, I knew about uh, oh boy who was out here poisoning folks. Um, <laughs> I can't even remember his name right now. I don't know what's been going on lately. I've been having brain fart all day. But the cult leader uh, who was having people drinking Kool-Aid in Guyana and killing folks, uh, that was the history of Guyana I knew. From Jamaica, it was Marcus Garvey. And, you know, my dad talking about Jamaican Independence Day and him growing up in, in Jamaica. Um, and I was also really, really fortunate. The schools that I went to, I think I maybe had from first grade to to what, my senior year of high school, I maybe had four or five white teachers across all of those years. Every other uh, teacher, it was like 90% black teachers, like 8% <laughs> Latinos. And then here goes the two mm. you know percent white folks. And not saying that white people aren't equipped to teach black history, but there's just a certain level of connection that comes, you know. So my math teacher was teaching us stuff about about black history in Africa, and, and the, like no, like I, like our African ancestors are, were damn mathematicians. Um, my global history professor, my, or global history teacher rather, Mr. Smith. Shout out to you. I don't know if that man's still alive. I got to go look for him. Uh, <laughs> even our forensic science teacher in high school, Mr. Morgan. Like I, I was really blessed to have people who taught me those things and and to have pride in them and then you know going to Spelman that first year you got to take African diaspora in the world you learning all the the terrible histories of slavery but also how we as a culture have managed to preserve as well as just (sighs) overall just you know continue to thrive despite being oppressed every single day um Mm. but yeah i am i'm just i I, i've been pretty pretty fortunate (laughs) and with that said let's get into our conversation with our guests kenyatta mclean is an urban planner and strategist interested in neighborhood resource distribution and heritage conservation She works with organizations to deepen their understanding of spatial narratives and curated conversations and to develop projects centered in racial justice. 
Emma Asore serves as its co-managing director alongside Kenyatta, and her work is focused on building creative community, building operational leadership, and projects of a growing urbanist collective. Emma Kenyatta, welcome to Dear Culture. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Awesome. So we'll get started. Uh, For folks in our audience who may not be familiar with the term, um, can you guys give us a brief synopsis of what do we mean by urban planning and how do urban planners help shape Black communities and Black culture? Um, Yeah, I can jump in. Um, This is Kingata. We use the term um, urbanist really to be inclusive of multiple different uh, folks, which might be urban planners who do a lot of like community engagement work to try to think about where do resources go in a city or like in a Mm -hmm. town. Um, It also includes artists that do work in the built environment and in the cities and the places that we live and also include people that think about policy and writing like the laws that um, control the space that we're in. So all of that becomes this term urbanist. Yeah, uh, urban planning is really about the sidewalks, where the lamps are placed on the street, where the bus stops are located. And so when Kenyatta was talking about how resources are decided, urban planners are kind of these professional technical roles that really have a huge impact on whether there's a highway running through a black neighborhood or not. Mm. And so Mm. as black people and as we call ourselves black urbanists, it's really important that we're at the tables making the decisions about where these like kind of infrastructures, but also how people are involved in the process of this like public domain. Uh, so we are, that is kind of the, the people who we organize are the people who make that work happen. And then we sort of leverage our power together to influence how cities and spaces and uh, public goods are kind of designed and happen in our communities. Mm-hmm. And I would love to better understand the work that you two do with Black Space. Uh, you guys are a collective of teams in Chicago, Atlanta, Indianapolis, and Oklahoma. Uh, so you're pretty expansive. Can you tell us why Black Space was created and what's the vision you all have for Black Space? Yeah. Um, so Black Space was re- created because a lot of us um, were feeling very creatively stifled. You know, a lot of these uh organizations that we worked at, you couldn't even say the word black when we were literally dealing in neighborhoods that were black. And so it was like very (laughs) confusing why we couldn't do that when that was like, and we wanted to think and dream from a perspective of black culture, black people, um, and the ways that we have always made places and built up our neighborhoods and cities and towns. Um, And we couldn't do that on a day to day. So we were like, hey, we see an opportunity here. We met at a conference like randomly and started having brunch and started having these beautiful conversations about what the future and vision might look like and um, felt very inspired. And so five years later, we're, you know, literally redesigning farms and um, helping steward like black heritage spaces um, and museums in Brooklyn. And so it's, it's really exciting that we think our vision encompasses like people and continuing to organize around this idea of black urbanism, but also um, uh, like, building things in the public sphere and helping people, especially black people and people in neighborhoods like where we came from, um, imagine and dream the the kinds of infrastructure they want in their own neighborhoods. So, I mean, like with everything in this country, right? Urban planning has such a 
nice root and racism, right? So <laughs> strong, <laughs> just yeah. strong, strong root, strong as my grandmother calls it, a root. It's just right yes. there, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, from the fact that there are racially segregated neighborhoods that experience higher clusters of violence, you know, in part due to racism and in part due to urban designing. Um, I mean, hell, even just from a climate perspective, like there's discriminatory discriminatory practices that, you know, like redlining that have essentially made some black neighborhoods and communities of color hotter, physically hotter than others. We don't got no trees around here. Like I'm I'm a born and bred New Yorker. Uh, I believe the New York Times even reported that redlined communities can be five to 20 degrees hotter than whiter, wealthier neighborhoods. So fun. Uh, <laughs> um, I would definitely love to hear from both of you about this, but I'll start with you, Emma. Uh, you know, what are some of the ways of I guess discriminatory urban planning practices have impacted and erased black communities and culture. Yeah. So one of the examples that I already brought up was um, sort of highways through um, black neighborhoods um, in under the guise of progress, but really they severed a lot of places where poor people lived, black people lived, other marginalized bodies. And so we see the impacts of that today where our communities have literally been divided by urban planning infrastructure. Um, we also, uh, there are things like um, uh, restrictive zoning, where zoning codes basically determine what kind of buildings or type of buildings can be built in certain places, so industrial versus residential. And in places where there are restrictive zoning, you can also say what the density should or should not be. And so in some towns, they'll say, oh, only 13 houses per square mile or like acre, right? Which essentially means that there is not clustered housing for like apartments or other kinds of housing that might be less of an impact on the environment, but also more uh, able to accommodate people with fixed or lower incomes. And so though that kind of zoning code really impacts where poor people, where uh, marginalized people, black people do and can live. Um, it, so those are two that are really um, a thriving and alive in still in our fabric. And diving. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I think when we think about urban planning in general, it's often historically been, how do we keep black people away from here? Or where can we put black people? That's like where it, its beginnings are. And so there's so many decisions that are exactly what Emma's speaking about that decide that these resources should not be near black communities or that black communities should not have access to certain resources. And diving more into what preserving looks like, could you talk about what that has traditionally looked like. When I think about preserving our culture, I think about like uh, institutions like the Schomburg Center in Harlem or the recently instituted African-American Museum of Culture here in D.C. Uh, what what has that looked like and how does preserving uh, our culture address this discrimination and racism um, in urban planning that you just spoke to? Yeah, I think one um, is it continues the point that <laughs> like Alicia Wormsley offers us, which is black people exist in the future. We also exist in the present. So like the preservation of our culture, the preservation of our existence, like other, you know, just like the, the places that you just spoke of, also Weeksville Heritage 
um, center in, in Brooklyn is a place that's saying black people lived here, right? And black people are living here. And here are all the different ways that we make culture, make routine, make connection with each other. Be because that um, culture really, if we think about it, has been a lot of the ways that black different communities, especially in the US, I'll talk about particularly, um, if we think about all of the different things that Emma mentioned that are breaking up and dividing our communities, the preservation of culture has been the way that we pres preserve ties and we preserve lifelines between each other, right? It's why I, a like, black girl from Southern California, can like go somewhere in North Carolina and feel family, right? And feel at home with people um, because no matter how the divisions happened in the way that you know our, our families literally great migration, a lot of our families are moving because of the different like racism that's happening and they um but we still have these ties to each other through that culture and we also offer this term of conservation as well as preservation because we want to bring up this piece of not only do we want to preserve and hold like you know uh, grandma's pocketbook right but we also want to think about what does it look like to um live with that and like then be able to use it and move that into your own like you know your own bag right like and how do we use these like different artifacts in the present is exciting for us to think about too. So this is, this is not your Mima's archiving experience. All right. Okay. Uh, so when, you know, when we're talking about preservation, I guess what exactly are like the kind of things that we're talking about? Like are the, are these museum exhibits, are these digital archives, are they, you know, historical site designations? And I guess my next question would be then, what? How do we determine what's worth preserving? <laughs> Ooh, big questions. I think um, Bill, double clicking on um, Kenyatta's mentioning of conservation. Uh, a lot of what we do is try to figure out what are the values of what people are already conserving when they are just doing what they do at the neighborhood level. And so we worked in uh, Brownsville, Brooklyn, and you know, typically historic preservation is like, let's look for buildings of architectural significance. Let's find the historic sites and put a monument. Let's make a museum. Let's make a library archive. And all of those things are very important in preserving history and culture. We're also looking at what are the ways uh, Black folks are doing that um, as well. And so we are talking about things like street namings or there are homecoming events where people who used to live in the neighborhood come back every summer or, um, you know, different festivals that are happening consistently throughout the year that are gathering spaces for community, for culture at the neighborhood layer, right? It's not just like I'm going over my family member's house. It's like the neighborhood is coming together around these kinds of events or um, ways of commemorating space or people who are important to the neighborhood. And so we are really interested in uh, kind of articulating that value uh, or there are also like funeral rituals that people do when somebody dies, like at the neighborhood level, there's there's gathering, there's ritual. And so we want to look and articulate what those values are in addition to these more, you know, archival preservation practices and figure out how to kind of merge them together. And so, for example, we're working now and we've had a relationship with the Brownsville Heritage House, which is a physical structure that has a lot of black artifacts in a black, in like the black aesthetic. And we're working with them along these traditional archival practices to help them reimagine the space, but not necessarily preserving the exact uh, object for preservation's sake, but because 
we like to interact. We like to converse. Like, how do we use those artifacts as a jumping off point for a conversation versus like you have to look at it behind a glass, you know, window you cannot touch. You have to be quiet. Right. And so we're currently kind of exploring what a community archive looks like that is related to space, is related to artifacts, is related to the preservation, but also the future of like what black spaces mm-hmm. can be. And Kenyatta, I would love to hear from you on this. You know, for someone who might not see the value of preserving this black heritage in particular, why is preservation important for black people? Mm. Y'all, these questions. Um, okay. <laughs> um, it's, I think it's important because it extends. So, okay. I'm gonna try not to get too woo woo, but, um, time, right? Like the time, this concept of time is really important. And this idea of us being connected and bounded through time. So if we think about the past, the present and the future, mm. right? We like live, we, we currently like are living in this present dimension, but it's really important to see ourselves um, extended out and also like um, backwards. And so I, to me, I think, I think about the Sankofa um, and Dinker symbol has like really been always important to me and my values. And so preservation like allows for that. It allows for those, um, for the feet to be like placed forward. And moving into the future, but not forgetting, you know, and looking back from there's so many lessons, so many memories, um, um, so many like healing or like, um, you know, traumatic moments that are, are left in these artifacts, whether it's, um, you know, we've talked about the pieces that people in particularly in Brownsville, as folks were immigrating to Brownsville or migrating to Brownsville, what were the things that they brought on the you know trains and the car rides there? Right. And what were those things that when if you, if you think about how much forced migration different black communities have experienced, the preservation of our existence in those communities um, and the preservation and just like of those different objects that we take with us. It also preserves like culture back down to this, like, what are these? I think the earlier question of like, how do we decide something's important? Right. Like it's the things that hold close to our heart. Right. I know I walked into my grandmother's house and it was being sold. And it's like there's a there was like this pressing comb in the kitchen. Right. And I it's important to me to preserve it because that pressing comb done burnt the edges of like half of my family. Right. And I'm like, that's important to me to think Mm. about black hair care and like, you know, why I care about hair. So I think it's important for individual reasons, but there's this collective tie to like, we are here and then we are connected with each other and we have bounded experiences. And we can see that through those items that we preserve. Yeah. And I think moving that to a, a, like that sentiment is also happening at the neighborhood level, at a regional level. I'm from Prince George's County. It's a predominantly black County, you know? And so a lot of those ways of organizing ourselves, the systems that we use and carry forward could probably work better if we were to be more connected with those ways of those those kind of um ways of thinking and ways of being rather than being like well we need to mm-hmm. copy whatever they're doing over there in this like white town to bring over here it's like how do we bring forth the future of our communities through the stuff we're already doing mm-hmm. that has worked for us okay so I got a really, really, really real question for y'all. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I think we we definitely have to take it a step further and let's talk about 
uh, gatekeeping authenticity as it relates to, you know, preserving black history, right? So with the work that you guys do at its core is essentially storytelling. I guess for you guys, my question would be, how do we make sure that preservation is happening authentically, right? And we're avoiding falling into the traps of quote unquote white dominant culture practices around history telling. Like how do we essentially decolonize <laughs> all of the archi- you know, all the archivist practices? How do we how do we do that? I mean for us our manifesto is a big tool that leads us. So we have fourteen different principles that we offer to all fields, right? Like design, urban planning, architecture, preservation. We like, we handed them things out like candy. Like, please look at these principles, actually digest them and use them to like do exactly the work that you're doing. So one of the things we've talked about and that I've been in community now with Emma for like six years doing is like centering ourselves, right? Because the way that we are academically trained in all of these different fields centers white people. So then, yes, you will always come back to, oh, um, my architecture must be this reference to some European, um, 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 uh, what am I, I'm forgetting the word, but person who does architecture, because I'm an architect. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry, y'all, sorry, y'all. But it's like, you'll always make those reference points. And this gets right back to that question that we just talked about of like, why is preservation important? Because we need references that are centering us, like our folks, like in different African countries and different like black communities within South America have been planning. They've been designing spaces because they lived in them. And so if we have the preservation of those spaces, we can have them as actual reference points that allow us to center our folks, right? And center the lived experience of our people in our work. And this is our final question. And I know our listeners are probably going to be saying to themselves, how can I... uh, be a part of this work, this incredible work that you two are doing, what Black Space is doing, how can we as a collective serve as good stewards of the culture um, in our own communities? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot in resisting what's going on in your community. And so in, in every place, um, there's often a place where Black folks are congregated, you know, and what is that space? and making sure we water, nurture, acknowledge that space um, and its challenges, its triumphs, and then figuring out, you know, uh, like, how do we engage with that? And sometimes it won't always be accessible, even to people who are Black, if you're in a different neighborhood. So I think it's understanding that we're everywhere, we're making spaces everywhere, acknowledging that, and finding out a way uh, to water those kinds of spaces. And um, a part of the, a part of resisting the status quo is doing that. And what I mean by that is it's a lot easier to join the, I don't know, boys and girls club board of directors or something than it is to like uh, figure out how you can, I don't know, uh, make a meal at a community event that's happening at the, in a black neighborhood. And so I think it's resisting the urge for prestige, for elitism, for clout, for whatever, um, and moving into spaces where you can, um, I don't know, where you're, you're, you're in community with people and you can work alongside people over a long term. Yeah, I think that be in community with people, but be in community with people piece that Emma just mentioned is so like essential 
that's like what we all have to do is just kind of re become humans <laughs> and like get personal with people, know your neighbors. Like you will save yourself in the, if we talk about climate uh, change, knowing your neighbor's names and their phone numbers, like changes your life expectancy. And so it's like even those type of things that in this more like gentrified world where everyone kind of lives in their own little unit, like breaking that down and breaking that down through an act of preservation. Like maybe there's a tree or there's something that everyone's interested in. And we have a little plug. We have a heritage preservation playbook on our website. Um, so that's a way it's a free download for folks. And it just um, is our offering of getting people to be able to start these kind of small neighborhood level projects of preservation. That's amazing. I'm going to definitely download that. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that because, I mean, in the grand scheme, we came up in the realm of, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and all this other stuff. And then all of a sudden, community has just, you know. Where the village go? Where the village go? Where the the village at? I need, like, what what is this? (laughs) You know, know, and especially now, especially like during this pandemic and where we're supposed to be showing an abundance of community my God, uh, we we have taken so many steps back, but I I applaud the both of you ladies. Thank you so much for yes. all of the incredible work that you are doing. Um, you know, yeah, again, we all we got. So I <laughs> I really I definitely appreciate all of the work that you're doing, all of the work that your organization is doing. Thank you both so very much for joining us today. Um, again, we're this work is so important and we appreciate your continued commitment. I know it's not easy we i know (laughs) kudos to you thank you all thank you all for being in conversation (laughs) with us yeah thank you for offering this platform So, of course, if you want to learn more about our guests and the work they do as part of Black Space, visit their website at www.blackspace.org. That's B-L-A-C-K-S-P-A-C-E dot org. Or follow them on Instagram. And I believe your ads are just blackspaceorg. That's O-R-G. We want to remind our listeners to support your local black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is The Black Home. The Black Home is the destination for inspiration dedicated to highlighting the black experience. Understanding the fear associated with black as it pertains to color and culture, Nephi Walker designed and curated a space where black is celebrated always in all ways. The Black Home represents a celebration of Black artistry, creativity, and excellence. Their carefully curated home decor selection allows you to bring the Black Home into your home. Walker's adaptation of minimalism has been featured in Essence, Blavity, Domino, Apartment Therapy, and more. To learn more about the Black Home, visit their website, www.theblackhome.com. The GRIA has published a list of 50 plus black businesses to support during the coronavirus pandemic. If you'd like your business to be featured, email us at info at That's G-R-I-O dot com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions and compliments. We love those to podcasts at thegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and co-produced by Taji Sr., Sydney Enriquez-Payne, and Abdul Caduce.